The one thing that I have learned from my almost 10 years in the fashion industry is that starting a fashion brand is not about having a lot of money, connections, or years of experience and skills in design or business. It's about understanding the fundamental principles of starting fashion brands and consistently executing, prioritizing, and focusing on those principles. It sounds simple, but for some reason, fashion schools fail to teach this. Because of this, I decided to start a fashion brand startup consulting group so that you can finally learn how to start a fashion brand in six months with a low budget, no social connections, and no designer business skills. For just $97 per month, you will have access to a private coaching group that includes the following. Firstly, a step-by-step video training guide on how to start your fashion brand in six months with clear, concise, and easy-to-follow steps. Secondly, you will also get 24 hours a day, seven days a week access to personalized coaching and feedback from me personally. And thirdly, weekly video coaching calls so that you can learn and network not only with myself, but with other fellow fashion entrepreneurs. As you guys know, this podcast is completely self-funded, so all of the money made will be used to create better and more content. If you want to join the Fashion Brand Startup Consulting Group for just $97 per month, the link will be in the description of this episode. I really look forward to getting to know you, what you are working on, and what you want to create. Now, let's continue with the episode. Building the fashion businesses of the future together. Welcome to the future of fashion business. The future of fashion business is about helping aspiring fashion entrepreneurs and designers start their own successful fashion brands by learning from the best, most experienced people in the industry. I am your host, Esteban Julian. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Future of Fashion Business. I am your host, Esteban Julian. And on this week's episode, I mean, it's very little that I can say about this episode and this this week's guest, to be honest with you. Uh, I say this every single time an, epi- an episode comes, comes out. I know I say that every time that an episode comes out, this guest is my favorite. This has been my favorite conversation ever, whatever. I think that's a good sign, but because I think generally the, the, the quality of the guests that I'm receiving is generally improving. But this has got to be the most interesting conversation I've had in a very, very, very long time. Uh, and... Bethany, the person that I sat down, sat down with today, has got to be one of the most interesting people that I've ever had the, the blessing and the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with. Uh, Bethany Vernon, which is this week's guest, is, I mean, you, you name it. She's an extraordinary, talented artist, uh, craftswoman, entrepreneur, designer, uh, sexual activist, uh, book author, and just an overall, I mean, there's, there's this, when, when I was talking with Bethany, this, this just one thought came recurring to, uh, to my head. There's, there's this meme of, 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 you know, the most interesting man in the world or this most interesting woman in the world. And Bethany just kept hitting all the, uh, all the checklists or the, all the checks that I had in my personal mind of people that are extremely, not only extremely, extremely interesting, but also extremely, extremely capable in every single sense of the world word, uh, capable from a talented and creative perspective. I mean, her work is absolutely extraordinary and as always link is going to be in the description of the episode i highly recommend you check out her work if you don't know and you haven't heard of bethany uh beforehand you probably have but if you haven't um make sure you check out her work beforehand 
Uh, but again, not only extremely, extremely talented creatively, but also very, very intelligent from a business perspective. You can tell that Bethany, I mean, she's had a third, she's had an almost 30 year long career as an artist and entrepreneur. So you can tell she, uh, she knows a couple of things about multiple things to say the least. Uh, again, an extremely, extremely interesting uh, conversation on Bethany's not only career, but mostly just the way that she developed from a creative, personal, and business perspective. Uh, people with uh, careers as distinctive and as successful as Bethany's usually have extremely, extremely interesting stories that translate into incredible and very, very interesting designs and creativity um, uh, creativity products or, or creativity visions. And this episode was all about Bethany, her, her entrepreneurial journey, her personal journey, her creative journey, and how everything sort of developed. Because again, I always say this in, 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 in all my episodes, when you look at people like Bethany with such distinguished and successful careers, it's really, really hard to get to relate to people in that position just because again of how much and how developed they are in their professional career. But uh, this episode really works as something that grounds people like Bethany as people that are just at the end of the day people that started somewhere that had talents that had problems that had struggles and at the end of the day the only thing that they did was focus on what they'd enjoyed focused on being true to themselves as artists because I think that if you're going to have a business from in any creative industry you are yes you will you can become really really proficient at business but it's very important to always remember who you are in your essence if you're a business person if you're an artist and at the end of the day people like Bethany in their essence are still artists you know they're still in some ways, the people that they were 30 years ago when they started, just time and life has done their thing. All right. So I really, really hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, an incredible episode. Uh, and don't forget to check out uh, Bethany's work before you, 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 um, you start listening to the episode. Uh, but that said, uh, let's get to the episode. <laughs> Thank you for letting us know. I, I really enjoy the Zoom added that feature just because it just makes the entire introduction a lot more awkward to just let us know that everything is recording. Uh, but anyways, Bethany, I'm very, very excited yeah, to have you on the podcast. At least they do because otherwise people are recording. Yeah, yeah people will record and you had, you'd have no idea about it, right? But uh, yes. I'm very excited so, to have this conversation, Bethany. I mean, I, I, I haven't said this before, but I, I really am a huge fan of your work. I think your work uh, as a jeweler, as a designer, as a creative is, is incredible. And I'm in this conversation as not only somebody that, you know, has this as a job to talk and sit down with really, really incredible people in the industry, but also as, as a true fan and, 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 and um, appreciator of, of your work. Thank you so much. No, it's my pleasure. Tr trust me, it really, really is. Uh, but that said, uh, let's let's start off with uh, with your story. And I know you've had a very, very long and, and, and an interesting story so far within this industry. Uh, so I do want to ask you, how did everything start, Bethany? Like, how did you get started in this industry? Uh, what was like the biggest event for you that really dictated or you could like going back, you know, two plus decades or whenever you started that you were like, you know, this is what really got me started into this whole fashion design and creative industry sphere. Um, well, I think that uh, probably um, maybe my move to Florence in 1989 uh, would be sort of like a point of departure mm -hmm. in the sense that um, I went to Florence because uh, 
as an art historian, I'd come out of the uni and I uh, had my degree in art history and with a minor in religion and philosophy. Mm, and um, I went uh, straight to Florence and I was teaching goldsmithing actually immediately university wow. level um, goldsmithing. Wow. And in Florence, of course, uh, I found myself back in the um, fashion system, which I'd sort of kind of avoided at a certain point in the 80s, uh, just because I was more curious about being at my, my bench and, um, and making jewelry, than, which destroys your hands, by the way. You know, we we look at jewelry and think, oh, it's so shiny and gorgeous and glamorous. But in reality, the process of making jewelry is really um, hard on, on the hands. And uh, it's everything but glamorous. Um, anyway, so in Florence, I started to work with Luis Villaroma, which the, in the 90s was um, really a cutting edge concept store. And I guess the first, because it came before Corso Como. Uh, and it gave a window to the fashion world that was really unique. You know, Andrea Panconese um, was a forerunner in the idea of the, well, in the concept store. And in that beautiful Luisa Villaroma uh, in Florence, I had a huge window. And the fashion system from around the world was coming to Florence because there was already things like Tiwomo and fashion events that were happening it was very different, you know, than it became in the 90s, but it was happening. And suddenly I had um, clients all over the world, particularly in Japan. Um, wow. And I worked a lot with Barneys, uh, both in Japan, but also in, um, you know, Barneys America. So it, I had, you know, a window in all of the stores. And that, of course, added another level and it gave me visibility. I was very young. I, I started um, the collection, I guess I was 21, and had this window at Louisa at 21. Um, so it started very early, you know. Jewelry is strange because it has this weird positioning um, that is uh, between fashion, sculpture, jewelry, of course, uh, art, design, um, craftsmanship, and um, a lot of people don't know this, but I actually am an artisan in the end. I make all of my prototypes, and that makes me, I guess you could say, also a good technician. You know, I, I design, but I also... You're a craftsman. I'm a craftswoman, yeah. Yeah, crafts, craftswoman, right. Yes. Yeah, so to this day, you still sit down and, and, and do every, every single prototype. Yes. Sometimes I'm, um, you know, I've, I've learned to embrace also technology. My sector has really been transformed by technology. Right. When I was teaching jewelry making in Florence in the nineties, uh, there, there was no idea that what was going to happen with 3d dev. Uh, and I, in the beginning, of course, I was terrified. I remember the first time I walked into a factory in Arezzo where they were making chain and it really startled me because I saw my tools that I use by hand, all being done with robotic. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a it's almost like and, a threat to the skills that you've been building out for so many years. Like, right? Yes, like but I also now have overcome this fear, uh, uh, which actually happened in two fourteen 
Uh, I worked with, um, for the first time on a monumental scale, with uh, white marble from Monte Altissima in Tuscany. And I did the development for the sculpture, which is called The Origin, um, in um, earth, no, in clay. Uh, and then it was scanned and taken forward in a monumental scale with CAD. No? And that really changed my whole attitude about technology. I think maybe now more than ever, I am actually ready to embrace technology even more, you know, well, good timing, you'll say to me, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, to adapt. No, and I think I think that's very normal, especially with people that are so dependent. I mean, as, as you said, you are a craftswoman in your essence. And craftsmanship is something that is built upon heritage. And if you think about something that is built upon heritage and you try to introduce technological aspects to it, there might be quite contrarian one to each other, but it's, it is a natural practice. It is a, it is a natural part of the process, right? Like they both, they both complement yes. each other, even though superficially they might seem like two completely contrasting things. Yeah. I think the hardest thing with technology is to um, protect the soul of an object. You know, we get very attracted to things that are handcrafted because they vibrate. They vibrate with the energy of the artisan who made them. They vibrate with the actual materials that they're made from. Uh, you know, the irregularity in in the leather or the stitch, you know, a, a, a little bit of irregularity can actually be very beautiful, you know. Um, so I try to 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 mix the 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 hand crafting aspect with technology right of course this this is um i'm very excited about what's coming in the new year uh because um i will make steps towards um a more technological sort of setup uh so yeah no exciting Awesome. Yeah. And it also adds a, a sort of like a new level to the creative process, right? Something new to learn, something new to add a new, new creative challenge. Cause, cause at the end of the, at the end of the day, it all comes down to that, right? It's about how to, how to add something that might work in its essence, be, as you said, completely different to the, the essence of, of, of humanity that is transmitted through craftsmanship into something that might be more robust, more robotic, less, less about emotion, more about rationality. And how can you find a place creatively within your heritage and your products, right? Uh, and how, compli yes. how complicated of a process has that been for you? Like, was it something that you sort of adapted to? And, and I know you said it took you quite a, a, some time to sort of embrace that change. But once you did embrace it, how long did adapting that into your creative process sort of, sort of take? Was it years? Was it months? Well, I, I, I basically use technology when it's better than me, you know? Uh, there are moments when I don't want to use technology, but there's times when when it works really well. Uh, so I, it does. It just depends, you know, on what the object is. And uh, right now, I'm curious because I have, you know, I'm celebrating 30 years uh, since the conception of the Saturday Sheet Collection. <laughs> I know it's crazy. I was a that, baby. That that should. I mean, yeah, you should wear. You should say that with pride, Benny. I mean, if if you look at the world and the amount of 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 brands that last for three decades, the I mean, the percentage is. So I mean, that's. I think that's incredible. I've been very blessed, you know. I mean, when I when I began to do the erotic uh, jewelry, I was aware that there was no one 
that was there was nothing out there like it no in 1992 it was actually kind of a a dangerous um endeavor you know i had a lot of people say to me well most people said to me in my entourage you know you're crazy what are you doing there's not even one store um it's true i had a lot of um issues with the collection also with my clients like i could not convince barney's to to take interest even in the more symbolic things you know like the sato sheet collection uh with the ball and ring mechanism so yeah. uh yeah, it's to say that it's it's going to be 30 years in 2022. Happy New Year, by the way. Um, is uh, kind of a surprise for me, too. <laughs> wow. Honestly. Awesome. And Happy New Year to you, too, Benny, of course. Now, now that you said that, it brings me to a question that I wanted to ask beforehand when you were talking about your first consumers or your first customers being uh, predominantly or, or, or maybe a lot Japanese. Uh, I mean, your, your product has, I mean, to this day, I mean, I think people now are more open to your type of creative vision. But as you said, back when you were started, I can imagine it was very difficult for people to really, I mean, were especially retailers willing to take those risks. Uh, but why do you think a, a, a society like Japan that is culturally and, you know, generalizing a lot, very averse to risks from a behavioral perspective, but also from, from a creative perspective, uh, from a consumer base uh, perspective, why do you think that they were so attracted to your 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 creative DNA and your 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 designs initially? In the nineties, they they were maybe the most cutting edge market that you know I could have had access to. Really, um, the Japanese they they really value uh, craftsmanship, and they uh, they were intrigued by mm, pieces in the collection that were more complex, no? Um, They're intrigued by the storytelling uh, as well. And um, I think it, I think it has, it's a, it's a mix of things, you know, and in the nineties, in the beginning, it was just, it was a very strong market. Um, and I, you know, had the honor to, to, to work uh, within it. Um, Today, I'm, you know, at the time in the 90s, I was uh, really determined to change the world, you know, <laughs> somehow. I really went on a mission without knowing what I was doing, you know. When I first got the initial pushback, and in, I think it was 1996, by a buyer, a head buyer at Barney's, uh, she said to me, this is not appropriate for our stores. And I was just kind of blown away because I was showing her my classic pieces that have the chains that connect bracelets and rings and can be worn on their own and can be, or can be shared. And uh, they just didn't want it, you know? And so I, I realized through this uh, negative reaction to the work that um, there was something in there, you know, when, when we hit a nerve um, for me, it's actually a sign that we better, um, dig in and see what's going on no um there were no venues for me to sell my work from uh really the more um erotic things i sold them mostly to private collectors no and uh the fashion system wasn't ready you know fashion is uh of course it taps into desire and sexuality and sensuality you know, I always say between the fetishist and the fashionist, there's 
the, 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 the lines the are blurred. No, exactly. Yeah, we're fascinated. Those who who love beautiful things um, are also fascinated by beautiful food. Um, beauty in general is something that matters. No, um, so Walakwa. The, the, the path is not over, you know, it's, it's actually sometimes shocking. At the turn of the century, I thought, oh, wow, um, I think that we're entering an era of, of sexual enlightenment, you know, and that really wasn't the case in the end. I've asked myself throughout these 30 years of career, because, of course, you know, I grew into my work, too. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea. I just knew that there was a white space. There was something missing. Totally. And that, you know, why go and do what everybody else is doing? Like, do your own thing. Um, I remember actually here in Paris, there was a headhunter, a very important headhunter uh, for the fashion industry. And he came to visit me in my first space, which I opened in Paris in 2004. And he said to me, Bethany, I'm not going to share you with anyone. You, you are going to focus on what you're doing. If you, if you go and work inside the system, um, then you won't do what you're supposed to be doing. So he refused to, to <laughs> find me a job, I don't know, designing at MS or who I would have designed with for, you know, voluntarily. Um, I did work for Gianfranco Ferre uh, in 2002. I did um, his first uh, uh, collection of gold before Gianfranco fell ill, sadly. So the project was, was compromised. We, we developed everything. It was beautiful. But he, as you know, rest in peace, uh, had a stroke and left us. Uh, but um, the idea of of giving up my freedom also was kind of kind of uh, mm, a factor as well. You know, uh, I'm a researcher. I am on my own sort of schedule, and uh, I guess I guess this headhunter was right. It was Jean Jacques Picard. He said, you just, you, you go and do your thing. Please focus on what you're doing. And that was amazing, you know, to have the support of someone whose opinion I valued also and value enormously to actually tell me, you know, focus on what you're doing. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. Breakthrough, create the market. So I basically created a market. And part of that, you know, doing that also meant that I had to sort of step forward into the light and be a voice. You know, uh, in 2001, I um, started to travel with the Boudoir Box, uh, which is an object that allowed me to sort of tackle the problem of not having a sales point. You know, I was like, okay, well, I'll go to my private clients. <laughs> and so I would just get on an airplane and go. Clearly, uh, that became increasingly difficult um, after September 11. And so it was shortly after that, that I decided, oh, I'm going to have to, you know, create an environment where people can come. And that's when I made the decision uh, to come to Paris. And uh, it felt like the best place. It was an amazing um, decade and a half uh, here in the City of Light. Um, really building and solidifying and cementing the ideas, the concept, um, stretching the um, the work into environmental uh, sort of experiential spaces, uh, working more and more with the body as a medium. Um, Paris was amazing, you know. 
for this extremely creative and connected, you know, because the fashion system was coming. Um, and even though I was sort of on the side of it, you know, I mean, I have, I, I was working also with Colette sometimes with, and still every once in a while, I'll do a special collaboration, Max Fields. Um, but, you know, when, when Colette closed, I took it as a sign. I took it as a sign that things were going to change and that um, uh, B to C uh, structures were going to be the future. You know, um, of course I've struggled because uh, my work is heavily censored um, whether that's on Instagram or, or now metaverse, uh, Facebook, um, even just uh, general SEO. Um, I really, I've had to change the names of pieces. Um, I've had to, uh, I've had uh, to bear campaigns. the burden of censorship. Yeah. I can imagine everything seems effective, but I mean, that could be productive. You know, that could be some of the factors that might just keep you having such a loyal following uh, and almost a fanatic customer base and consumer base, you know, so it could end up being productive for you. Um, but wow, Bethany, I mean, there's, there's so many things that I want to ask you. What a fascinating process. What a fascinating story. Uh, and so, it's not over yet. <laughs> no, I know. I know. And that's what I want to ask you questions because, because every, every two sentences that you say, I'm like, oh, wow, I have to ask a little bit, a little bit more about this. That's why you continuously see me typing on the computer. Uh, but going back and because I do want to continue with, 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 with the story, of course, uh, you said that one of the biggest things and one of the biggest factors that helped you along your career was finding uh, this sort of mentor figure that was sort of the emotional pillar for you in order to guide you through your through your professional decision making. Uh, it's 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 and I think this is a very this is a, a topic that I want to talk about because highly creative people tend to be uh, in a lot of cases. And again, I'm very very I'm generalizing a lot. Very insecure in their own talent and in their own capabilities. Very very early young when they're 20 when they're 19 and they sometimes need those emotional mentors to guide them through that emotional prior to that emotional process to give them the confidence that they need to actually pursue something that they were born to do. Because I mean, I'm guessing your 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 creative talent was palpable from the very very beginning, right? I mean, it's not it's not normal for somebody to just leave university and start teaching university classes. Yeah. You know? Well, I, it's true that I um, that I started very early, and I um, I well, for a question of necessity, you know, you may know I have a slightly rocky childhood. Um, with an English mommy who was a civil rights activist who took action in America in 1960, February 1, with the Greens War 4 um, at the World Wars, which marked the first sit-in uh, in history, the first sit-down, they called them. And it was the second action that was taken after um, the Rosa Parks uh, um, bus boycotts. And so mother wasn't American, you know. And that um, definitely whittled away at the relationship, I think, with my father. And um, so I lost my mother very early, you know, for racial reasons, you know. Um, that's a whole nother story. Um, but I left uh, home very, very early. You know, I became independent very, very early. And um, I, was, I was driven by the arts. You know, I, my mother had been in the arts and um, I ended up wanting to have the degree in art history because it was a very wide um, scope 
now. And, um, and from there, of course, uh, many other things of, you know, came, came forth when I got to Italy at a certain point, Florence got small, you know, after about four years, I, I, it was time to go, you know, and I thought to myself, okay, either I'll go to the best uh, industrial design school in the world, which is Domus Academy. At the time, there was 21 students chosen internationally. And um, it's a school for um, postgraduate uh, master for architects. And I thought to myself, my process is um, architectural, let's say, and let me just try and see what happens. If it doesn't work, then I'll go back to Paris because I knew that I could fall back on the modeling, you know, if I, if I, if I had to, I didn't really want to, but it would be there if, 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 if I had to have, uh, you know, take another, another path, but I decided to pursue that path. And one day I got a call from Aldo Cibic and he said to me, Bethany, um, you've been accepted. You're one of the 21 can you come to Milano? And I knew that that would be sort of a career changing moment. No, um, of course I was the only one that was not with an architecture background, but I thought it was fascinating that they would throw someone like me with an academic background into this mix of architects. And it was really uh, another milestone because uh, I guess I was 24 at the time, 25, 24. Uh, and um, we worked 25 years in the future. There was no concept of the now in Domus Academy. It was a school for futurists, no? So we were projecting the future. And it has been, I'm in the 25th year of that study. And it's really amazing to see how, how precise we actually were, no? I mean, we designed things like smartphones and um, uh, interface to um it was basically i was designing interface no uh, the idea that um the world would be um completely submerged in product and the trash that comes with it was already something that we talked about um when people talk to me about sustainability um i struggle with it because for me it was already old the idea of sustainable in the 90s no we have to talk about durability today because nothing is sustainable. Nothing, nothing. Um, so I think that this is also what's exciting uh, about this moment because um, we must adapt to this fact, you know, nothing is sustainable. So what do you do? You know, we can't talk about sustainable fashion, really to talk about durable fashion. So what does that mean? You know, I mean, for that, for me, that means, um, staying creative and creating your own style. And of course, fashion will always be with us because we, it's part of our, it's part of human nature. Somehow. Yeah. We need to be, we need to, in most areas of the world anyway, get dressed and, uh, and, and, you know, fashion is about feeling it's about politics. It's about culture. It's about all sorts of things. And so fashion is with us, whether, um, whether whether or not you know so i'm super excited about um seeing what's going to happen in the industry because it will have to be turned upside down like most industries 
And so I think it's, 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 um, you know, I'm, as I said to you, I'm here with a person in the house that has COVID and um, it's uh, this COVID business has just been, uh, we, it catapulted us no, into this future, which um, I worked around when I was doing Domus in 1994. Wow. And basically everything we projected happened, um, including what's happening right now. You know, there's only so much that a, that a bio system can take. And so we've hit the tipping point. Um, and I'm very excited to see how we're going to save ourselves. <laughs> 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 and well, I'm convinced that's... that we can. Humans are amazing, you know. Yeah. Uh, and this is why I'm also, you know, I'm in my current planning. I am, um, I'm going to go uh, and be closer to... Uh, the design world in Milano, in Italy. I'm going back to Italy. I believe that's what's happening. Uh, Amazing, Bethany. Wow, what a in the future. <laughs> what a fascinating process. I mean, I mean, really, because I mean, just just to sort of make sure that I understood the entire process. Because to be honest with you, I find I find you extremely, extremely interesting. I don't think you're one of those guests that makes my job as an interviewer so easy. Because I do the only, the only thing that I have to do is ask you one question and just all of this incredible information just keeps flourishing out. Uh, but that said, in terms of the creative process and how you were, your, your creative uh, background, or, or I guess, quote unquote, training, uh, the reason why you've been, you were able to progress so quickly was a from a creative perspective, was a mixture between your, your, the way you were born your, the experiences that you went through when you were raised, I mean, not, not when you were born, uh, but when you were raised and then moving into this sort of almost like a environment of highly, highly creative individuals uh, throughout your, again, very, very early in your life, both your, how you raised in your childhood and in your early twenties, which then developed into your just creative skills that some people that are, do not go through those experiences it might take, you know, decades, 30, 40, 50 years if they ever develop them, right? Well, I think I was lucky that somehow or another in this absence of parenting, which is partly what happened to me, there was no, there was no parental guidance whatsoever. I was kind of just left to be who I was, you know? I wasn't as, and I really, I've thought about this as well as the question about like, why is our sexuality so suppressed by the system? Um, but the fact that, um, I was sort of just like abandoned, uh, uh, left me to discover who I was. You know, I was very, I was very, um, uh, I guess, courageous too. You know, I left home at 15. A lot of people do. It's not uncommon in the States particularly. Way more uncommon in a place like Italy or France. Um but that instability sort of forced me to say to myself, I guess, you know, either you Who am I? go out there and you, and you save yourself or you are going to be in danger, you know, and the human instinct is incredible. The human instinct to survive and thrive and live um, and, and learn, you know, one thing that was transmitted uh, by the little bit of parenting that was going on was the importance of, um, of, of learning and curiosity, you know, I learned with my father to look, you know, and not just look, but to see, you know, you can look at things and not see them. Um, and he was also an artist. He was someone who 
Um, he was also a helicopter pilot. And uh, he, I guess he connected me to the world of the, the, the mechanic world. You know, there was always a motor being built for a helicopter uh, during the winter season in the library. You know, he couldn't fly from December to February. It was too cold. And uh, so he would be he would be rebuilding or building the motor for um, normally a helicopter, but sometimes it was a it was a vintage car that was being remade in the library of the house. And there were uh, very, very um, uh, sort of classic Victorian double doors that opened up into the back of the house. And he would just drive, you know, push the car in or pull the motor in, set it up on planks, and he would work throughout the entire winter on the motor. So I, as a child, I was very close to him when he was there, when he wasn't flying. Uh, and that those moments, those two months of winter or three months of winter were always for me, uh, winters of learning, you know, he wanted us to play musical instruments. He wanted us to sing. He wanted us to read. He wanted us to study the, the, the classics languages. Um, so I think that, you know, I think that that was maybe also one of my greatest gifts you know someone who who taught me to see not just to look mm -hmm. and to learn and to understand so in the end I became you know I'm an academic at the end of the day I, I would stay at the university full-time if I could um and and I'm sure that I'll go back and forth until the day I die you know um in and out of the 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 learning the learning process you know mm -hmm. it never ends I mean it's an infinity the more you learn, the more that you realize that you know nothing. And uh, so, yeah, I'm a curious one. You know, I'm a monkey in Chinese. I think it's got something to do with it. Uh, the Chinese horoscope, I'm a monkey. Maybe <laughs> monkeying around, you know, <laughs> using my hands and, uh, and uh, yeah. Wow. Like to, to create. Uh, and I don't really see limits with the medium you know my my favorite medium has become the 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 body over the years obviously um i'm uh i don't know if you saw the work that i did in the salle de raoul de fille at the museum of modern art in paris where i actually play a human body i didn't know where, where can i find it um if you go on to the museum of modern art you can just uh museum of modern art paris um salle de raoul dufy um fait électrique it was it's a room that was um painted by raoul dufy in the 30s and it was all about the history of electricity and i thought well why shouldn't we bring now that we know the new sciences uh, uh neurology is 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 um giving us insight into the human brain that we never had before you know and i thought to myself why not bring the impulse that is the electric impulse of the human brain into this room and so it's um that was an exciting moment it's called the tita it was it was the first session of uh it's called tita tita frequency session one um in the fay electric in the electric uh ferry oh yeah i've got it right here I've got it right here. I'm definitely going to have a look at it after the episode. Wow, this looks incredible. Uh, and obviously, listeners also check it out. And I always say that make sure you check out. I mean, probably if you're in the fashion industry, you probably know who Beth, Bethany is. Uh, if you don't, I highly recommend you check out her work. Uh, her work's going to be linked in the description below. Uh, but again, 
uh, just so you can truly value, I mean, who you're getting to, to learn from, uh, because again, Bethany, I think now that you're, now that you're talking about how everything was raised and who you were creatively, how your, your environment may be affected, how you developed professionally, personally, creatively, it's, it's all easy to see in hindsight. Right. But as you're going through the process, uh, you're just sort of moving along, as you said, and you said one thing at the very beginning that I really, really enjoyed, which is when you're having these sorts of conversations, everything sounds like it was planned. Everything sounds like it was, you know, conscious decisions that you were actually knowing what you were doing. But the reality is that the entire process is just so, it's just so random. It's just you adapting to opportunities that come your way uh, that eventually lead to good opportunities when in reality, you're just consistently making mistakes and messing up for years until you actually figure if you if you stick consistently think through things you eventually come out the other day to that you eventually come out the other end and then in hindsight you're like oh this is this is how the path actually looked like but in reality it wasn't right well you know it, it i i don't think that i really had a choice it's going to sound crazy but um i was in Paris in 1996 and I the, the erotic collection had been going, you know, had been evolving, but I wasn't able to place it in, in any of the fashion venues that I worked with. And I came with an assistant who'd never been to Paris before. And I said, look, let's, I'm going to walk and just give you like a sense of my Paris now. Uh, and while we were walking, I, I had a full on vision and it, it was very clear. Everything that was in that vision, I accomplished. Um, and she left me three months later. <laughs> Funnily enough, she wrote back to me like, I don't know, four years later on uh, Instagram. And she said, you know what? I wanted to just tell you, like when you were having that vision and when you were insisting on bringing this erotic jewelry to the forefront and creating a market that didn't exist, you were crazy. And I have to say that I've watched you do it. You did everything that you said to me that day, as you explained to me what was happening in real time in your mind. I did. I had a little bit of a vision. And that often happens to me. You know, I think that as creative people, we often uh, work uh, with, with um, this vision that comes from someplace else somehow or another. If you're tapped into it and ready to accept it and grasp it and write it down and cement it somehow, because it can also be very fleeting. And sometimes you think, wow, I just had a really good idea, but I lost it. You know, where does that come from? Um, so I try to give myself as much, uh, time in the day that I can to actually, um, keep that part of my brain open and receptive to the vision. Now, mm -hmm. uh, I wrote what happened to me down. And recently I started to put, uh, material together for a new book that I'm doing, um, which is actually really basically a book, book, a picture book, you know, a compendium of 30 years of what became, I called it uh, in the end, Paradise Found Fine Erotic. Um, is it going course, to be, a, is it going to that be a, too, because a, a visual book or, or, or yes. an actual book like the Baudelaire Bible? It's uh, no, it is uh, only about the jewelry. Um, most for the most part it does talk a little bit about the interior work which again is just a natural sort of unfolding of ideas mm -hmm. um but it's 30 years of documentation going from 19 1992 uh with the beginning of Sadashik and um, this collection that um, allowed me to understand that jewelry could be more than you know have a value that was more than intrinsic or 
uh, aesthetic, but it could also augment the body and our capacity Spiritual. to, uh, well, also the mind, but the body, mm-hmm. you know, my work sometimes is, it's like, a, it's a bit prosthetic, you know, some of the pieces. Um, they basically amplify our power to provide sensations and um, and receive sensations. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, that's uh, it's been it's been um, full of really unexpected things. This journey, um, one of the things that I did do, and that um, you know, if I had uh, students that were listening to us today, I would say you know, keep an archive. It's been very you know interesting to go back, and I think that's something that um, I received at the uni from uh, my jewelry professor. Uh, he was very very. Um, insistent about documentation. And so I was able to fish back 30 years and come up with photography that, um, that you know, in analog, a lot of things in analog, which is amazing. And um, all the way up to the moment where, you know, I stood in the light after September 11th, uh, 2001, I, I really put down on my fears. You know, I stopped hiding behind the other collections that I was doing. I stopped hiding behind, um, the truth and the truth was is that i felt like you know this world is so uh at lack um of love and how do we make objects and design spaces that can actually facilitate that and help people to put down barriers and feel safe you know and that's what my work did and it opened up a whole market you know i found myself in 2000 finally in 2002 there was actually a uh, a, a women's uh, sort of focused erotic shop, you know, um, that was Coco de Mer in London. It was the first time that there'd been an idea, you know, something that was luxurious, but also blatantly sexual, you know. Right. And I'm and guessing so culturally it, it was around the same time, you know, Marlon Manson started to become Marlon Manson. Uh, Kat Von D started to become Kat Von D. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm not sure if you correct me if I'm wrong. It was, well, no, it, turn, that, of the, that, turn of the century. Moment, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sort of that part of the moment. Okay. Wow. Uh, by the way, uh, Bethany, how, how long do I have you for? Because honestly, I could talk to you for three hours if I'm not giving a limit. Uh, and I do have so many other things that I would like to talk about. But obviously, on. I have a, in theory, I have a call at 730. So we're. And what time is it now where, where you're at? 648. 48. So we have okay. 45 minutes. Okay, cool. Awesome. And to this day, does your you said that a lot of your your creative strategy and personal and business strategy is focused on those subconscious epiphanies that continuously have been showing up throughout your career and your life. Uh, to this day, is that the same process that do you do you work in the exact same way? Um, well, the jewelry collection, actually, uh, it's I mean, I rarely add things to it. It's a collection. The Rada collection is about 400 pieces. And um, I guess that is the most incredible thing. When I talk about durability, I mean it, you know, the collection continues to, to have a life of its own. It's, um, and it's timeless. And I think that's due to the fact that it's, you know, it's handcrafted, it's beautifully made, uh, it's very distilled. And also because the, 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 the work references the body, you know, and the body, uh, it doesn't really change, you know, it's, um, we still just have, you know, two hands and 10 fingers, we are, the body doesn't change. And so um, somehow or another, these, this collection is still relevant, you know? Of course. And so it will be very interesting to see what happens next with it, you know? 
And again, I'm really curious about embedding technology into this um, process. I'm also interested in, you know, what can I do to bring technology to things that were uh, part of these other collections that I was doing, you know, because I, I I created a maison, you know, I have uh, maybe 2000 pieces of jewelry that I designed over the past 30 years. And that was due to the fashion system. You know, I was very much, um, and I'm very grateful to the fashion system also, uh, because it is such an incredible win window that um, if I hadn't been embraced by that system, uh, I would never have managed to make such a difference. You know, the boudoir Bible probably wouldn't have existed. And I have to say, that's another, that's another, you know, thing about the work is that without all of the people that embraced it without fear, you know, I, I, I generate fear also because I deal with the most intimate thing that's possible. You know, I deal with people's, sensuality and sexuality um and there were little by little you know cutting edge um journalists and editors uh that understood the importance of the work started breaking the armor you started finding cracks in in, in the armor of, of, of society well it's funny that you say armor because the jewelry for me was like armor in the bigger picture you know because i was making jewelry and i work in in noble materials, I work in, in silver and gold, uh, so durable materials. Uh, because of that, I was actually able to sort of move through many worlds, not just the fashion world. Uh, I, I, of course, worked in the design world, and, um, and there was this erotic world that was like the underbelly, you know, and still is today. I mean, it Everything that was happening at the turn of the century that seemed like there was going to be some sort of era of enlightenment, sexual enlightenment, it all pretty much um, either transformed into something like lingerie stores uh, or closed, you know. And I think that's also due to the internet and things online. But um, yeah, uh, the scenario has changed so much, you know, if you think about. Uh, retail, how we work as as designers and stylists and fashion the fashion folk, uh, and how it's transformed from the '90s to today. You know? mm -hmm. Okay. Again, and, how do you stay relevant? Right, of course. And and now that you're talking about relevancy, uh, when it comes to relevancy creatively, because at the end of the day, that is the essence of our industry: is are you relevant with with the designs that you're creating and with with who you are creatively? Today, more uh, than ever. Exactly. Uh, you, you said that you use a lot of uh, a lot of things that are timeless, timeless in its essence, that have a lot of a heritage and that therefore facilitate the fact to become relevant over time. That said, being relevant over time not only demands that, but also continuously being able to innovate and adapt to modern times. It's a mixture of of tradition and contemporary, you know, so how what have you used uh, to to continuously to stay relevant from uh, I understand the, the 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 traditional and timeless aspect of your work but from a more contemporary aspect what do you look for do you look for uh political ideas is it more uh philosophical uh what do you look for in order for that for that contemporary relevance well i think that my mission is unaccomplished and so the the quest remains relevant no uh and the jewelry again became like this armor for me to be able to move also into the wellness sector you know i over the years i also because my work deals with the body 
uh, and often trauma. I work a lot with people who have suffered from from sexual abuse. I didn't expect that either. You know, in the in the nineties, I thought everybody was just going to be on a pleasure course like myself, you know, and I discovered that there's a lot of pain in our sexuality. And I guess until uh, that comes to an end, the work will remain re uh, relevant. You know, um, I think that uh, our sexuality is constantly at risk of being pushed under the carpet and pushed behind the bales, um, prohibited. Um, and um, and uh, the education around our sexual wellness is completely ignored by most systems. And so, you know, my work in many ways, as much as I'm a designer, I am also um, a sexual activist, I guess you could say, because I'm a firm believer that in the moment that we, um, we own our uh, sexual persona, we encounter our sexual persona, we, um, we open up uh, a fountainhead of possibilities. In our lives, and 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 on the contrary, when we are um, prohibited or inhibited or kept in the dark about our bodies, um, our our we're incomplete somehow. I believe mm -hmm. that um, it's important that our society really wakes up and gives the keys. You no, know? and it's not just the body; it's the mind and the soul. You know, to just disassociate. Uh, the 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 body and mind soul triad uh, when it comes to sexuality is actually really naive. You know, mm -hmm. today we're looking at this naivety in the face when we think about the way that um, sex became like a com uh, a commodity. You know, um, so yes, there's a part of my work. I you know I'll always be tinkering in the studio and always be sculpting and always be drawing and and creating whether it's something as small as a as, as a as a sadashik earring or as big as a origin monument, whatever it is, uh, the work always has a political edge. And this is this is not something that is not something that I thought about when I started to work. I was too naive, you know. I was really young. Of course. Um, today, more than ever, I feel that it's important that um, that the world has references, and my work is very gratifying too because I have. Um, every day, you know, I'm reminded that I've helped someone to live a happier, healthier life in general. You know, mm -hmm. when your sex life is in order, everything else is in order, pretty much so. Amazing. No, I, I love that fundamental idea. I mean, the idea that as and it's it's almost like a responsibility at this point that you're, if, if you're a, a, an artist or a designer, you do. There has to be something more to that. Uh, and not only, I mean, not only for the sake of others, but for your own sake, creatively, because if you're not pursuing something like you are through, you know, sexual activism, uh, then what, it, what are you truly creating for? You know, at the end of the day, those, those things are the things that guide you creatively and truly make you stand out from a creative perspective. But also if you want to look at it from a commercial perspective, even that, cause that, that validates that your work is actually actually means something not only to you but to other people you know and it's and yeah, it's, it's, and it's tangible path, in that aspect you don't you don't ever know where it's going to take you i think the most important thing is that um you know you you decide that you're going to follow your vision follow your heart and um again give space to that um 
that dimension where um, the vision can be uh, what can manifest, you know, that also comes from nowhere. We don't know. You know, I had no idea. I had a full on vision. I knew exactly what I was going to do. I told my um, uh, assistant at the time exactly what was happening. And when I go back and I read what I wrote in 1997, eight, I think it was 1998. I was working at the time with um, with a showroom in Paris that was called CVDC. And it was me, McQueen, uh, Hussein Shalayan. Uh, I don't remember who else. It was We were very few designers and it was like sort of the cutting edge Legends. of the moment. You, yeah. <laughs> you got to love fashion for that. You know, Hussein Shalayan, come on, he was doing the most incredible things. A, really a futurist as well. Wow. Um, as much maybe today as someone like uh, like Iris, no? Uh, she's she's amazing, no? Wow. Doing her her very tech tech driven garments, no? You've you've lived the. I, I think it's fair to say you live you've lived a good life so far, Bethany. You've yeah, met some interesting uh, people I along the way I've, as well. I've, I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed. I have. I have. I'm. I'm. I really am so blessed, you know, uh, and of course, as I, as I go forward, you know, I'm saying to myself, okay, what's next? You know, this book is coming out with Rizzoli with, uh, to celebrate 30 years of erotic design, jewelry design. Um, and there's also the Boudoir Bible, you know, which has allowed me again to, to push through areas. It's not, you know, there's fashion. Yes, but there's also there's also this factor of, of sexual wellness. Exactly. And what is now what's behind it's in, it? It's, well, it's nine nine languages now. We just, uh, Rizzoli, Italy has done the Italian version, which was for me was very important because as you probably know, I have a part of my life which is very much attached to Italy, aside from the fact that I produce everything that I make there. But to finally have the ninth edition, and they, they, they changed the name um, from the Boudoir Bible to Eros, uh, and it works fine in Italian, but, uh, you know, for me, the book is a way to also be more democratic because my work admittedly, uh, um, is couture, you know, it's often made to measure, uh, it is, was always made to measure and it's, um, made to order. And especially now, um, I've, I've decided, well, in 218, I started to pull from all of the retail spaces and I'm working only at the moment with first dibs, which is a beautiful place to be and really unique environment uh sales environment completely online you know who would ever have imagined you know um uh yeah what's next amazing awesome Benny. well i do want to i do want to take advantage that we do have 30 minutes left i think that we've had a very very incredible conversation of sort of like more of the creative process, who you are, your story, how the entire thing sort of developed and a lot of philosophical and political ideas that help you solidify the entire vision and solidify yourself as a person as well, especially when you, you were starting out. Uh, but from a business perspective, because I do think that this is an incredible opportunity for people to learn about a very, very business related topic in this industry, which is timing. You know, timing is a very, very important factor. Uh, you can be incredible from day one, like you were. And if the time ain't right, if the market isn't ready for it, you know, you'll, you'll be able to make a living off of it. Sure. You'll be struggling, but it'll, 
move things forward. But if you truly want to make an impact, which is at the end of the day, the, the purpose being found behind every artist, you need to get that factor right. Just so you said, you were struggling. For, how long did it actually take you to actually get to a point where the market, the world was ready to accept what you were doing? I think it was 2000, maybe eight when Colette uh, here in Paris. So 10 years, to, pretty much. It's funny because I remember when they closed, Sarah uh, Andelman came up to me one evening and she said, Bethany, I have to tell you something. I sold your work for decades and it never got old. That was the biggest compliment that I could possibly have received. No. Um, when we talk about struggle, I mean, I think it was in my case, there was no market for what I was doing. So I knew that I, have, I would have to create a market and I would have to also stand in the light. I would have to be brave. I would have to be prepared also to be uh, misconceived and pigeonholed because I think one of my biggest issues throughout the past three decades has been projection, you know, and it's okay. You know, I, I always forgive people who project their um, vision onto me because there just simply aren't that many references, you know, um, like myself when it comes to um, really embracing a, a, a sexual realm and bringing it into the forefront. Uh, of our lives, no, prioritize your, your sexual wellness, no, and don't be afraid to hide the fact that you do, you know, um, my jewelry is often symbolic of a, of a, um, you know, a liberated lifestyle, you know, somebody who's wearing my jewelry, you know, if you're, if you're in the know, you know, that there's somebody who's enjoying life. No, <laughs> let's put it that way. Um, um, I lost my train of thought anyway, to be frank. Uh, you were, you were, uh, you were talking about breaking through those 10 years and how that entire process looked like, because I mean, people again, have this expectation that if you're really good, that's all that matters. But if you want to have true impact timing really, really matters in the marketplace. And you were saying that you having had to, luck. you had to create your own market, which is, I mean, which I can't, I can't even imagine how difficult that was. What? So taking advantage of that how did those oh, first we were talking ten about projection yeah projection exactly projection and understanding that it was an idea but eventually that the market wasn't ready for you that you were pretty much have to push yourself i had stylists say to me oh you're into pain and i'm like no that is your idea and you know you can't blame them because up until i started to do the work and be you know decided to go visible with it um anything that had to do with full body stimulation or sexual enhancement or whatever was either classified as pornographic or, or pornographic, you know, there was the erotica had sort of slipped out, slipped out somehow. And especially now, I mean, we live in a very pornographic society. If we look uh, at, at how porn has informed uh, everything, including fashion, and it commoditize and commoditize the entire world. I mean, look at companies like OnlyFans, you know? Yeah. Which, by the way, is um, something that I have to consider OnlyFans because I'm, I'm you know, banned on Instagram, um, shadow banned, et cetera. And when the Museum of Natural History of Vienna decided to go on to OnlyFans to share their erotic works, I thought, okay, I can do that too. So it's one of my goals for 2000. I think, I think that'd be amazing. 
I think that well, I'm amazing. going to be there. Come and follow yeah. me. I, th- um, I think that'd be amazing. I mean, from, from every, from a market, I mean, Instagram is so saturated with everything. I mean, that, I think that'd be not only something productive for you, but as for the brand as well, to be following fashion brands on OnlyFans, I think what better way to, to succinctly put what your brand is about, you know? But you see, when we, if we go back and we speak of projection again, the idea of being on OnlyFans uh, was something that, that, um, it was up until recently considered something that, that sex workers do, you know, and I'm not a sex worker. So, um, and I know people who have, who have worked on OnlyFans and, and um, you know, people who also make a living with OnlyFans. Um, for me, it's about being able to share the work honestly, you know, of course. Uh, censorship is a very dangerous, um, uh, it's a very dangerous monster, you know. It affects um, communication. Especially in my case, you know, because I am not, I mean, I projection has uh, made it such that certain people who have a small vision about their sexuality have put me in a pigeonhole. But in reality, uh, we are all, we are all eager to learn and to um, have a great sex life. And, but I'm pushed to the back side of those machines. So yes, here we go with only fans 2022. Yeah, no, and not only that, I think that one of the biggest problems with um, things that communicate or have a very sexual nature to them is that, again, because of regulation, communication gets very, very blurry or if not completely canceled out. And you can't have transparency. You can't have connection with people if communication doesn't exist. And if you rely on visual communication entirely and you're getting so affected because of political or company or regulations, then OnlyFans can be a great avenue for you to be able to communicate that in its truest, rawest, and most transparent essence, what you truly want to communicate, you know? Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting window. Um, Of course, because I I work also with education uh, and the Boudoir Bible is not a salacious, you know, uh, sex story, but it's a book about using my instruments also uh, you mentioned earlier something about responsibility. I feel responsible for what I have created, you know, um, and some of the tools that I created can be dangerous if they're not used um, knowingly and with skill, you know. So I really do feel responsible for the work that I put out there. And I went in general, you know, with the discussions in the boudoir Bible because I felt like it was also the moment, a beautiful moment to be able to create something really democratic for everyone, which again, my work is not, I work in noble materials and it's, you know, it's costly. The craftsmanship is costly. Materials are costly, Mm, but it also means that they're good investment pieces. You know, I think today more than ever, people are thinking about investment, how, how to invest. um, And golden diamonds are always a good investment, (laughs) you know, always silver too is a great investment. Awesome. Uh, um, Yeah. Um, In terms of, in terms of the business, you know, I think that one of the most important things that I, that I at a certain point accepted was that um, I wasn't actually a, a fashion designer. Of course, you know, if I'd had opportunities, I, I would have designed more maybe in the fashion system. But what I do is not fashion in the end. It's um, it, it has moments of being fashionable, uh, but it never went out of style. Fashion goes out of style. Very and quickly. style doesn't ever go out of fashion. Mm-hmm. 
I like that. I'll use, I'll use that quote in the intro of the episode. <laughs> I'll steal it from you and take the credit. <laughs> awesome. Me Benny. Too. Well, yeah. going back, going back because we went to a completely different tangent, which was super, super interesting anyway. Uh, but going back, because I do want to understand this part of your process. Again, the first 10 years where you were really working to create that market for you, how, and I know this is going to be a very, very heavy question, but I really can't think of a better way. It to took put me it. 10 years. But exactly. It took a decade. So how did that process look like from a financial perspective? Like, were are there any financial risks where you're literally working side jobs and reinvesting and using all those resources where you literally uh, from day one, just again, selling to private collectors that appreciate it. And based on that, creating better products, more, was it more communication based? Like from a business strategy perspective, what were you doing to create that opportunity that took 10 years? I was um, hiding the erotic collections and um, staying in the fashion system. So I, I, as I said earlier, I was working with Barneys, with Liberties, with Selfridges, with Printemps, the uh, Etage de Luxe. Uh, I was working with Maxfields. I was working with Kashyama, Bus Stop, uh, et cetera. You know, I, I, I survived and I managed to self-fund by designing the other collections. And I was doing two collections per year, I, so which is a big mistake. You know, if you're making jewelry, the wonderful thing about jewelry is that it tends to resist, um, uh, you know, the, the hands of time. Let's, it kind of defeats the, it defeats time sometimes, jewelry. This is one of the amazing things about it. Um, but I definitely was afraid, you know, when the people from Barney said to me, this is not okay. We cannot sell this on the jewelry floor. I understood that I had to also, you know, Compromise. keep a low profile, keep a low profile because it would, uh, it would have affected um, the successful business that I had developed just around the jewelry itself. You know, um, the jewelry was more uh, what I, I called it the classic collection. There was also a collection called the talisman, uh, which I, it was, it was, I, I think I'd never sold more of a collection than I did uh, this series. And because it spoke to the spirit as well, you know, talisman, you know, it says it all. And so I was, I was doing, you know, the other collection. And again, it wasn't until um, the you know, September 11 that I decided I cannot do this. And I took the risk of, dropping basically or my clients actually dropped me because i went to the paris fashion week in september 2001 three weeks after september 11 mind you it was a very strange fashion week that one uh in paris um but rather than taking any of the things that my clients uh had purchased up until that time i decided i'm going to present this erotic collection and i lost all of my clients <laughs> all of them wow and was there a, and yeah, so it was pretty much you compromised yourself creatively and in terms of the vision that you really had just for the sake of being commercially viable in the short term so that you could survive until the time was right. Okay. Well, but, but at the end of the day, you took that risk anyway, right? Or was, was there any signs that make you make that risky decision more comfortable to you? As I said previously, was it maybe a rising well, There was culture? a blessing. Uh -huh. It was a blessing that came with that decision. I just couldn't do it anymore. Like ethically, right. I, I felt like it, I, I have to do 
what I have been, I, I, I was pretty convinced that I'd been called, you know, there was like a calling to do what I do today. Uh, I had a very clear vision. It was so clear. It was uncanny. Today, right. looking back on it, it's uncanny. In fact, I speak about it in this book that I'm doing with Reed Soli. Um, yeah, I, I took a big risk. Uh, it was an interesting moment, you know. Uh, Tom Ford and Karine uh, Rothfield were um, really pushing this idea of... Uh, Heritage needed to innovate. Well, the idea of porno chic. Right. Um, there were moments when I thought, wow, okay, people, now is my now is the time. Now is the time. And that was... You know, the fact that the, the porno chic uh, movement was happening and Tom Ford was 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 building out his empire, uh, really um, designing for a woman who was empowered and beautiful, you know. Uh, and I remember being super surprised because I started to see that he was picking up on um, vocabulary, which had been up until that moment been shunned. You know, I remember seeing a Tom Ford publicity with a, there was like a crop or a whip on the bed, you know? And I was like, okay, now they're catching up with me, <laughs> you know? And that sensation was amazing. I, it's, it was empowering because like, I, it, because at the time, because of it was, there was like this happening as well. I actually started to speak to the press and, and the press embraced um, more and more. Um, so, yeah. Know, it, yeah, it, yeah, it, no, it, awesome, amazing. So it, it, it was, it was at the end of the day, it, there was a lot of risk attached to the decision, but there oh, were, yeah. it still there, is. there was, but there was rationale. There's, there were certain things that you were catching up to subconsciously, you know, about the moment, <clears> sort of, <throat> the, the things sort of shifting in that direction, right? The risk was there. It was always there, and it's still there. Mm -hmm, of course, because our conversations around the body around pleasure, because of course my, <clears throat> my understanding came through the work and through the years um, uh, with regards to the taboo around sexuality, you know? Today, sex is no longer taboo. I mean, honestly, they use sex to sell anything, okay? Um, but pleasure is still taboo, you know? This is, this became, very evident to me and it remains that way you know and I asked myself for decades like why how is it possible that something so central to our lives as our sexuality is not celebrated is not cherished is not um considered important by the system and i realized over the years you know with maturity that um biological reasons the reason maybe. Yeah. the reason is that because a sexually empowered person is empowered in every way and the sexually empowered are also powerful in their own right you know because they they've gone to the core They've gone to the core of their being, which is your sexuality. It's the center of your body, you know, and whether you want, like it or not, you can't ignore it. And if you do ignore it, it's going to come and get you sooner or later, you know, Amazing. it's going to knock on your door and say, wow, you know, you, you, your priorities are where, you know, mm -hmm. um, so I think that's why it's suppressed. 
Um, and if we look at uh, Audre Lorde, her erotic papers, I think she wrote the erotic papers in, was it 78? And she talks about the, the she talks about erotica and how erotic is, is the erotic is, is primarily female, you know, and if men would tap into their erotic, uh, into their erotic beings, uh, that there would be less violence and destruction and more peace on the planet. And I'm pretty convinced of that. Very interesting. Wow. 100% convinced. Wow. And the last couple of questions, just so you can, you don't have to run through your next meeting in a hurry. Uh, how do you think social media has affected the ability to communicate that with less risk? Because I, I do think that's one of the biggest benefits to, that social media brings to artists nowadays, just the ability to communicate to people, whether the timing is right from a, from a global perspective. Uh, but what do you think about that? Do you think that social media has made that risk-taking process? Around social media, I, I think that uh, social media promotes pornography. And as soon as you uh, promote uh, the erotic, uh, you get taken down. You risk, you know, I mean, the levels of self-censoring just not to be taken down, you know. Again, my, my account is not an account that you will ever just stumble on by chance. No, either you follow me or you don't because you won't just find me in the feed. I'm, I'm banned from that kind of thing. I'm not allowed to promote. Um, it's, uh, it's very, very complex when it comes to sexuality or sensuality or erotica or anything that is not, you know, PG. Instagram is PG. You know, it's for kids who want to now like get in front of the camera and spend their afternoons twerking or <laughs> or making TikToks. Into, you know, it's it's um it's it's hard sometimes. You know, I have a friend who's also she's a fetish model and she does she she enjoys being captured in the cords and she struggles with it too. Um, I just keep my Instagram down to a very very um design focus in the end uh, you know personal but not private and and I share with my followers um as as openly and generally as I can um but I think it has huge limitations um yeah. I'm not allowed for example to put a um link which I don't want to do anymore but there was a moment where I was really struggling because I thought why can't I put a link to Shopify I'm banned I'm not allowed. So for me, in my sector, I think that there is an incredible amount of control. I think it's dangerous. I think that um, uh, people live in the illusion that we are liberated and free and uh, sexually um, we can do what we want, but I don't, I'm, I am the, the living proof of the contrary. So we mustn't sit on our laurel, laurels you know, uh, I know that must sound hard, but it's true. You know, I, I'm, uh, I struggle to stay on the surface with, with uh, social media. Mm -hmm. I think that social media, uh, in many ways, you know, again, when it comes to sex, it's, there's a lot of pushback or sexual wellness. You know, they even said it, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're divulging sexual wellness or make sexual wellness, uh, designs, you're not, you're not wanted here basically. Mm -hmm. So 
some of those challenges that, as you said, the risks are always there, right? And the journey really doesn't end. You just sort of, you have this vision of what you want to achieve. Challenges keep coming through and you sort of have to continuously push through them, right? Yes, whether it's social media now, whether it was the retailers 20 years ago, and whether it is the metaverse in 10 years or whatever, right? Yes. And I think the other thing is to, I mean, in my case, uh, dealing with erotica, uh, I I diversified, you know, as much as I could. Uh, just because I, again, I'm the, in the Chinese horoscope, the monkey, you know, the curious monkey. Um, and I'm very grateful that I did that because that was also part of my survival tactic, you know. It was, it was risk averse. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, again, I did not plan this out. You know, I didn't know that one day I would become a clinical therapist. I didn't know that I would be working with the body as a medium. I didn't know that I would be, um, you know, that the work finally, in fact, I, I guess a milestone with this um, erotic collection was in 2017, the Museum of Modern Art uh, here in Paris. They did a show called uh, Bijou et Tabou, Medusa. It was called Medusa Bijou et Tabou. And the curator came to my space where we are today in Eden. And she said to me, I heard you have this object called the Buar Box. And I said, yes, I do. She says, I want to see it and I want to show it in the museum. And I said, I'll share it with you with pleasure, but I will not open it um, for the general public like that. And she said, okay. Um, we saw the work. Uh, she also asked me at the same time to take an experience uh, from my experiential space in Paris and bring it into the museum, which has resulted in the Raoul Dufy um uh tita session anyway to my space eden she said look i'm going to give you a week to think about this and um i thought about it a lot and um i knew that in the moment that i would expose the boudoir box to the general public it's a museum you know anyone can see it that i would instigate a paradigm shift and that there would be new secrets and new mysteries and new new projects uh coming forward and so finally in the end after a week i called her and i said okay we're going to do this i'm going to give you the boudoir box clearly i was immediately censored so even in the museum uh, i had a little room of my own there was a warning outside, you know, there was erotic material behind those curtains. In the end, it kind of worked for me. And the boudoir box was finally opened, not for salons and private groups and private collectors, but it was opened at the Museum of Modern Art in Paris. Awesome. Well, really, but really marking a, a, you know, instigating a paradigm shift. Yeah. No. And I do think, again, as, as, as challenging as that is from a commercial and creative and personal perspective, I do think that we are essentially, yes, in the business or in the industry of incredible design, uh, incredible artistic value and creative value, but also in the business of connection with people. And the fact that you're going through those challenges, and this can be you with, with sexual uh, inspirations and this could be another artist with something else uh it'll maybe prove as a challenge for to 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 be embraced at a global level 
but to a personal level with the people that truly matter when you're really starting out and really trying to identify everything, I think that could be uh, beneficial because again, of the ability to follow your heart, you know, follow your heart, follow your, follow your um, passion, do something that you love. Uh, even though maybe like I wasn't thinking about, oh, there's no market. I'm not going to make any money. That's not the way I was thinking. I was like, oh, there's a white space and nobody's dealing with this. And this is really important. Of course, I have this problem. And it's important to everyone, you know, in the end. Um, And then it'll come, you know, with when you decide, okay, I'm going to, I don't know, a tennis player. Think about it. You know, how many major tennis players are out there that make a full-blown living from it? Well, there are very few, but they decided to go and do it and persevere and put in the time. You know, it takes time. It takes time, um, takes love. It takes also connection and um, sharing and um, bravery. Uh, and what have you got to lose? I mean, isn't that why we're here? To to experience all of those things, you know, breaking down barriers and leaving something behind. I mean, for me, the work, it doesn't really, um, I mean, I guess it speaks for itself. It will be here when I'm not anymore. And um, yeah. And again, I wake up every morning thinking, you know, this is just beginning. I have so much to do. What a great way to, to end the episode. That was amazing. I mean, Bethany, I really, it's 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 a uh, it's a shame to end on such an abrupt note. Again, I could I could talk to people like yourself for hours, hours upon end. Uh, so just to again end this entire episode, off, I do want to thank you for being here. I do want to thank you for sharing your story at a maybe more intimate level than you're usually used to, and maybe different uh, different places. But it was truly an incredible, incredible conversation, an incredible episode, and and truly thank you for for have for for doing this. Well, thank you for inviting me. If you want to learn even more about how you can start your own fashion brand, make sure you follow me on YouTube at Esteban Julian. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Future of Fashion Business. Make sure you subscribe to listen to our future episodes.